Good morning. Love that song. <clears throat> Truly appreciated um, the scripture reading too as well. Love that verse as Bryce, Brother Bryce read, that you must be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That verse left by itself is extremely disappointing. But yet it's so magnificent because it focuses us on our utter dependence upon the only one who was perfect. Last Sunday, we began a short series on this topic of anxiety. This week, we'll continue with a part two, if you will, in our exposition of the book of Philippians. There's certainly no debating the need for us to discuss this topic. Last week, we referenced from the National Institute of Mental Health that anxiety has become the number one mental health issue in North America. We all know that it's not an issue that only affects the world. On some level, each of us as believers understand its effects. Furthermore, as we discussed, we cannot sh nor should not run away from the truth that anxiety is no small sin. We looked at John MacArthur's quote from last week that it's a fundamental error of dishonoring God. A distrust of the one who promises to never give us more than what we can handle. Never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. However, at the same time, this by no means speaks to us living a life that would say, let go and let God. We saw that God's word presupposes that we care in a good way about the things of this world, God's plan for our life. We looked at Proverbs chapter 6, verse 9, that it's the heart of man that plans his steps. So certainly, we're concerned from a good perspective. Our desire to fight against anxiety must be twofold. One aspect is this strong desire to enjoy a life of peace and contentment, joy, as opposed to worry and angst. But on the other half of that fight, it's a quest and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that we would hate the sin that so easily besets us and entangles us at times. The Purit Puritans refer to it as mortifying sin, simply a hatred of it. In Philippians 4 verses 4 through 7, last week we looked at three tools for defeating anxiety. Paul, after addressing the conflict between Euodia and Syntyche articulated that these tools are a means for protecting us against anxiety. Tools that would ultimately guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We looked at a joyful 
and gentle spirit, the ability to be joyful in all circumstances, whatever that might be, practicing an attitude of forbearance or leniency, giving up of some of your rights to others. Secondly, we looked at a prayerful release of control, a mindset of an urgent and specific desire for intercessory prayer, prayer for others, which takes our minds off of ourselves and places them on others, an acknowledgement that as undeserving sinners that we are, saved by the grace of God, that we are to be thankful in not just some things, everything. And then finally, we looked at a confident peace, this idea that our only objective source, the authoritative, inspired word of God, is like a soldier, like a protector, a sentry over the fortress of our minds. A peace that surpasses all comprehension, that only the believer can truly appreciate and understand. And this morning we come to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, just two verses, where Paul will continue this flow of thought, tackling this topic of, of anxiety, before he transitions to his closing section, which we will return to in several weeks. Our question still remains the same as it was last week. What are some tools for defeating anxiety? In these two verses, we will see three more tools in this all-too-important battle for peace that we all so desire and yearn for. Would you stand with me, please, as we read these two verses? Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. God's living and active Word spoken for us here today. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. You may be seated. Our first tool found in verse 8 is to dwell on righteousness. As Paul continues to equip the Philippian church against conflict and anxiety, he reminds them of the preceding context with this word, finally. In our introduction, we, re we reviewed the tools from last week. We would be wise to remember the call to harmony from several weeks ago as well. We looked at three commitments to love and edification, a fight for harmony, and working together. All of them serving to bolster Paul's original intent 
to tie these truths together for this church. It's as if he's saying because of these truths, we can have victory in everything against anxiety. And oh, by the way, there's still more. So, what are those final tools in the section that comprise the more? The late pastor, professor, and commentator Dwight Pentecost stated the following, and I quote, The greatest area of sin in the believer's life is not the area of actions, but the area of thought. In verse 8, Paul begins to deal with this dwelling of the mind. In order to understand on a greater level the focus behind this dwelling, we must understand the action behind it. As I look over here to many of our young adults, I cannot help but have good concern for you. Many of you over the next several years, whether it's here or throughout this audience, young adults, as John even referenced it in our opening, are about to make decisions in your lives that will be some of the biggest decisions that you'll ever make. Whether that's college, career, relationships, I want you to know that I, as well as this body, love you. And we are praying for you in these decisions. You are vital to this church and the universal church in general. Whether young adults here or those of us that are perhaps more mature, notice I didn't say old. <laughs> Although I already fall into that category with one of my sons. Either way, we all understand that there's times in our lives when we need to reason, ponder, and spend crucial time calculating decisions. This word dwell carries that same idea of deliberate, detailed, and logical consideration. Moreover, it's a command calling for a commitment to continually dwell upon what? As we think and as we pray, what will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? As we discussed last week, I made reference to beware of fleeting emotions. Even in our youth group, we've discussed that, have we not? Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 9 says that our heart is deceitful. Or Proverbs 28, 26, 26 says, He who trusts in his heart is a fool. Well then, what more is there in regards to positive tools for us in this journey against anxiety? and worry, if we're to dwell on righteousness, 
then what does that look like? I want us to examine each of these descriptions that Paul alludes to. Six different adjectives, one by one. As we, as a whole, as a body, seek to have victory in our lives over this topic of anxiety. He first says that they are to dwell on whatever is true. I believe wholeheartedly it's not an accident that he begins with truth. Everything begins with truth. Christ himself is truth, John 14, 6. In the high priestly prayer, we read that Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Even when we were apart from Christ, our consciences bore witness to the truth that we already knew. Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Or in Romans chapter 1, we knew God, yet we chose to suppress Him in unrighteousness. Truth is essential and critical, and if perhaps there's even some in this room here today that are still in that state apart from Christ, I would urge you to dwell on what you already know is true. God's word speaks to your heart and convicts you, even in our scripture reading this morning, that you must be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And no one is perfect except for Christ. However, for the majority of us, perhaps in this room, that are born again believers in Christ, don't let anxiety fester. Reason, ponder, and calculate the truths of Christ found in His Word. To calculate the way you would a monumental decision in life adds a different level of perspective and commitment to the Christian life. Even as I look to you all again with college and career and relationships, there's no greater thing to dwell upon, to calculate, than to where you are in Christ. Last week we referenced 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. That we are called to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's our goal, that's our desire. This of course happens by knowing Him. And his word, which in turn counteracts and destroys, as that 2 Corinthians 10 passage spoke to, lofty thoughts or speculations that are raised against the knowledge of God. Take them captive to the obedience of Christ. Understanding the truth of God's word. As the psalmist stated in chapter 1 verse 2. Would this be our desire? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. We need that. I need that. You need that. 
The second adjective when it comes to dwelling on righteousness is honorable. With the foundation of truth in place, one is better prepared to dwell upon people. This word is only used three other times. Each time it involves individuals within the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus. It conveys the idea of people who are dignified and worthy of respect that we might look to, that we might imitate. In chapter 2, verse 29, Paul urged the church to hold men such as Epaphroditus in high regard. Or in chapter 3, verse 17, he called them to follow his example. Who is your Paul? Who is your Epaphroditus? As you think of honorable, respectable, trustworthy men and women. Godly examples are men or women in our lives that cause us to focus upon the truths of Christ. Paul in his letter to Corinth said the exact same thing when he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Dwell on the righteousness that these dignified men exhibit and you will find yourself more focused on pleasing God rather than the worries and the anxieties of this world. The third adjective is right. If dwelling on what is true is the foundation, then dwelling on what is right begins the second step in this process, this mental process, and this fight, this battle that we have against anxiety. This word conveys the meaning of conformity to morality or law. What good is it to simply dwell on what is true if we are not concerned about what to do with what is true and powerful indeed for example listen to several of these scriptures concerning how we might respond to what is true and then forth do second peter chapter 1 verse 13 says i consider it right as long as i'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder not just a dwelling but there's more to it Philippians chapter 1 verse 7 for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart there's a response to the truth or for some of our sons and daughters within the room what about Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 children Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Dwelling on righteous behavior is our first response to what is true. We will see here shortly in our third tool what that dwelling ultimately produces. 
And what is our desire, our greatest desire in this fight against anxiety? The next adjective when it comes to dwelling on righteousness is pure. When we think of purity, we rightfully think of holiness. We think of being without sin. We think of being without blemish. In some respects, this dwelling on purity convicts each of our guilty consciences. The Pentecost quote concerning our minds is not by coincidence directly linked to James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. Listen to these words. But each one is tempted when he, carry, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. When anxiety first begins in the mind, it's rightful for us to attempt to fight against it by thinking on, dwelling upon, calculating what is pure, what is right, what is true. However, there is also on some level for each of us here today a level of contradiction that applies to that dwelling. When we look at purity in our own lives, as we consider our own selves, we feel the weight of the contradiction that at times arises. Should this cause us to waver in our commitment? Let it never be. We desire purity as followers of Christ. This is exactly what our Lord calls of us in his prayer when he calls us in the Lord's prayer and we state as well lead us not into temptation as we echo those words we know that temptation is coming we know that at times we succumb to it but yet we desire still and that is why we pray it to avoid the dangers of the temptation, to avoid the danger of, within this context, anxiety. Lead us not, Lord, into this temptation. We still run with an earnest desire, an earnest pursuit of purity as a tool against anxiety. As I think again of our young adults, I would encourage you with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, when it comes to purity and application. And that verse, verse reads, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How do you do this? You dwell on righteousness, faith, and love, and peace as much as possible in the same way that you calculate some of the biggest decisions you will ever make in your life. A life that dwells upon less lust, whatever that might be, computer games, pornography, unhealthy relationships will never find peace. 
lovely is the next adjective that we see Paul touch upon here. When I think of lovely, there's nothing like the sight of standing upon a mountaintop looking across a valley. Breathtaking in many respects. Pleasing to the eye. What is it that brings this same type of experience to you? What is lovely? Is it a sunset on a beach? Is it the smile of a grandchild or a child? Is it your wife? That is a given for me. In Esther chapter 5, verse 1, the Hebrew word translated to this same Greek word refers to appreciating beauty. Do we appreciate and dwell upon the beauty of God's word as one example? In the longest of all the Psalms, 119, appreciation and delight of God's word is on full display. Ten times throughout the psalm, the psalmist refers to his delight in the word of God. Can we consider this word as lovely, appreciating its beauty as a tool in the fight against anxiety? Would we echo the same words as 119.11 that says, Your word have I treasured in my heart in order that I might not sin against you? Paul is speaking loud and clear that a mind that delights upon what is pleasing to the Christian will find peace. Moreover, each of these previous adjectives all continue to point towards this ultimate appreciation of what is lovely. And what is that but Christ, His Word, His people, and His creation. The final adjective used by Paul when it comes to our focus for dwelling is good repute. When we think of these word, this word's significance and how we might apply it accordingly, we must dwell on the question, what is commendable or praiseworthy? Now, as we've alluded to several times, if God's word speaks to specific thoughts and actions as commendable and praiseworthy, then of course, by all means, we focus upon that for our dwelling. However, as we have also seen throughout, the words and works of persons who we trust and are worthy of praise are to be considered as well. Wisdom, of course, is a tremendous barrier against the sin of anxiety. Proverbs chapter 26 through 24, actually, verse 6 reminds us that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Seek counsel 
dwell upon that commendable advice. And it will certainly equip you and help you to defeat the self-focus of anxiety. Two last thoughts before we move to our second tool. The final two nouns in this verse of excellence and praise are actually a part of a conditional clause that communicates not, listen to me, uncertainty, but actual certainty. This is crucial for us to understand. The point is that these descriptions of what is excellent and what is praiseworthy actually confirm the attainability of our pursuit to what is true and right and commendable and honorable. Secondly, I think it's very important for us to not simply view this list as some type of list of ethics and virtues from a secular perspective. Why am I saying this here? Because we know and we have men and women in our lives that perhaps are not believers in Christ that at least on the surface can live a life that seems to be true and right and honorable. The original audience would have seen the similarities of this list to a Greek worldly culture. And what's the point I'm trying to make? Each of these adjectives actually in the grand scheme of our commitment to dwell upon righteousness showcase our need for Christ. Although on the surface, individuals look as though they are true and right and commendable, all of our righteous works apart from Christ are nothing but filthy rags rooted in selfishness and pride. But because of the veil that covered our worldly eyes has been lifted by the God who has given us light, we understand our inability at times as compared to our attainability of these pursuits, which in turn focuses our need upon Christ. As we commit to pursue these, we feel the weight of missing the mark. But you know what? That's actually a good thing. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll read verses 3 and 5. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. Commit with all of your heart to ponder and dwell on righteousness 
while at the same time realizing that it is God who gives us the power to attain these pursuits. Our second tool is learning righteousness. Look at the first half of verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Expositional preaching and teaching is one of our core values here at Miriam Christian Chapel. This is a tremendous value for us as it allows us to follow the flow of thought of the original author to the original audience in order that we might properly interpret the scriptures and hence apply them to our lives. Praise the Lord that that is a core value for us here and will continue to be. That being said, we cannot forget that the church at Philippi would have been reading this letter together as a whole as well. In the beginning of verse 9, Paul says, the things you have learned. They would have been fully aware of the previous context as they read through the letter. The major themes throughout the letter that we have examined as we've progressed through this study. This is just as key for us as well in our fight against anxiety. The two foundations of the gospel of Christ and the fellowship of Christ. The two encouragements of this great call to unity or to be able to rejoice in suffering. And of course the immediate context of conflict and anxiety. All of these things paving the way for learning righteousness and defeating anxiety. That's what we desire. That's what Paul desired for the church as he penned this letter. When thinking of these concepts and how we might defeat anxiety, I want us first to look at Paul's use of these two verbs, learned and received. Both of these words, Communicate the intellectual side of learning. Something that is the result of instruction all the while coming from a source of authority. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1 we hear this same idea. Paul says, finally then brethren, we request and exhort you. In the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Or in a similar vein, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received in which also you stand. We might say that this is learning from a mind side or head side, intellectual capacity, taking concepts such as what we have seen here within this letter throughout, committing them to memory as a tool against anxiety, and I encourage you to do so. A dear sister in this room here today, 
even came to me, if you remember, and said, would we be willing to commit verses of memory from this book into our lives in order that we might be able to be prepared to be intellectually equipped to fight against anxiety. However, this is not the full extent of learning that Paul is referring to. In the following two verbs, heard and seen, he touches upon the other side of learning righteousness. As one side is the mind, the other side is the heart. And using these two verbs, the apostle is speaking more when it comes to experiential knowledge and learning. The word heard is more than just paying attention. It actually conveys a sense of obeying. Reminds me of even a passage that we will examine next week as we seek to love our new babies that have come into this fellowship. Next week we will be having a special service to dedicate those children and to speak to each and every one of us about the importance of what it means to pour into the next generation. The reason why I bring that up when it comes to hearing and obeying is a specific Hebrew word that we will look at next week from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which speaks to not just hearing, but actually obeying. This is what Paul is talking about here. Not just learning righteousness from an intellectual capacity, but actually experiencing it and obeying in the hearing of that. When it came to the church at Philippi, we saw that they were partakers of grace with Paul. Chapter 1, verse 7. When it comes to us, are we committed to learn righteousness first and foremost from God's word, the ultimate objective authority, or the authority of men who have been given the ability to teach and exhort the body of Christ. Although this commitment cannot simply be intellectual, but experiential as well, moving from the mind to the heart. We'll see here just in a moment what the two of these combine to create. One theologian stated, and I'm paraphrasing, when it comes to this idea that I'm trying to communicate, proclamation without theology is worthless. Theology without proclamation is dead orthodoxy. Love that. If we are to defeat anxiety, then we must be learned in righteousness concerning these tools that we've examined. However, it cannot simply be a head knowledge, but a knowledge that is created through experience. How might we experience and witness more of these tools on display in our lives? The answer lies within our third and final tool for defeating anxiety. And that is practicing 
righteousness. Found in the second half of verse 9, Paul says, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What an encouraging truth. It is indeed my prayer that we, the people of Miriam Christian Chapel, would be individuals, men and women of God, that are committed to sacrificing our lives for dwelling on righteousness and learning righteousness. Our church has over 177 years of rich history being grounded in strong teaching ministry. Whether the pulpit, Sunday school classes, or any other teaching environment, the opportunity to grow in knowledge will continue to flourish, Lord willing. That being said, I have a greater concern, a good concern for us here as a body of Christ. In 1 Samuel 15, we read of King Saul's commitment to sacrifice. However, at the same time, we read of his failure when it comes to obedience. It's with this context that we hear the challenging words that it is better to obey than to sacrifice. In 1 John, we read that the children of God practice righteousness. And in contrast, he actually says that the children of the devil practice sin. Practice is the key word. If we are to defeat anxiety, then we must be a people that live by the motto that talk is cheap. We will walk the talk. That's worthy of an amen. Think about this from a natural perspective. What do you enjoy as a hobby? Quilting? Gardening? Wrestling? For me? Shopping? Perhaps for others? When I teach or train from a natural perspective, wrestling, my mind is not worried or considering the stresses, the anxieties, the worries of the day. When it comes to the spiritual, and I know you know this, because we have great men and women of God within this church that practice righteousness on a regular basis. But when we do so, when we are found discipling others, fighting for harmony, working together, actually practicing righteousness, we're not concerned about anxiety. We're not concerned about worry because we are pouring our lives into others for the gospel's sake. Living a life that would be called and brought into a sense of understanding that we desire to be worthy of the gospel. 
Grace is certainly free and gives us a tremendous release from condemnation. But it also serves to motivate us to practice righteousness. Dwell on it. Learn it, not just in your mind, but experience it in your heart as you practice it. Would that be your commitment here? In this body? Better yet, when practicing this righteousness, you will experience one of the most incredible benefits there is when it comes to living a life for Christ. The verse says, the God of peace will be with you. Is that not what we've examined in the past two weeks? We need peace. We desire to defeat anxiety by the grace of God. In chapter 4, verse 7, we saw that Paul speak of this peace of God, worded in a different way. This is the explanation of what that peace is. This term, God of peace, is only used four other times, and each time communicates two key truths for us to be grounded upon. Romans chapter 15, verse 33, chapter 16, verse 20, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, and Hebrews 13, verse 20, and of course, here as we see in the text today, They all indicate these two key truths. That God is with you and you will be victorious. This is another massive truth for us to grasp when it comes to experiencing victory over anxiety. We live in a world that unfortunately, in some respects, has infiltrated the church when it comes to a search for the next spiritual high. Often, in our flesh, we search for spiritual highs in order that we might overcome the anxieties of our day. Well-intentioned believers find themselves searching for some type of subjective presence of God as a means of protection against anxiety. This is often fabricated in smoke and mirror worship services that only appeal to the heart. Now don't forget, Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. We reference the quote, and I'll repeat it again, that proclamation without the heart is dead orthodoxy. And this is certainly the case. Wear your heart on your sleeve. Live with hunger and passion for the Lord. Although, let's not forget, proclamation without theology is worthless. 
Learning involves the mind as well as the heart. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Who was with them? The Philippian church, when Paul penned this letter, who is with you even here today if you are in Christ? The Holy Spirit is the God of peace that equips you to defeat anxiety. Many within Christian circles, once again, as I alluded to, speak to this presence of God from a subjective perspective. My friends, my brothers, my sisters in Christ, if you truly desire to experience the presence of God and victory over anxiety, dwell on righteousness in a calculating, logical, convicting sense and the same way that you do the most monumental decisions in your life. Learn righteousness. Embrace and love doctrine and theology. But at the same time, live with a heart that is sold out for Christ. And practice righteousness, which is the simple progression which takes place in the life of a believer. In John chapter 14, verse 26, we read of the Spirit's help on your behalf when it comes to this. And that great truth is that, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Precious Spirit, he is the God of peace that equips you to defeat anxiety. I almost want to pound this pulpit in a good way. Moreover, as we addressed last week, a joyful and gentle, forbearing spirit, a prayerful release of control, and a confident peace We'll continue our fight against anxiety. You will find each of these six tools from today as well as last week as indispensable in this pursuit. Any other attempt will simply be a counterfeit replacement that will leave you hungering and thirsting for a peace that will never come to bear. We have the answer. We have the truth. We have a hope. We have the word of God as an objective source, as an objective peace. We have the Holy Spirit that indwells us. That is our hope 
comfort and strength in this battle. And we will have victory by the grace of God. Let us pray. Lord God, we cry out to you as humble, unworthy, undeserving sinners. We are convicted, O oh God, by your word that was read this morning that we must be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. But at the same time, Lord, this great truth, as it convicts us, leads us to utter dependence upon you. And we know that because of your grace that has been given to us, that we have been called children of God, friends of God. You desire for us, Lord, to live a life full of peace and joy and contentment. Lord, create in us a spirit that would hate sin. Anxiety is no small sin. We trust you, O oh God. We lean upon you, acknowledge you, and know that you are directing our paths. Equip us, Lord, with these truths from your word, these tools from your word, in order that we might dwell upon them, in order that we might learn them, in order that we might practice them, not just for our peace, but ultimately, Lord, for your glory and honor. In the precious name of our Savior, we pray, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.